0: Well, how should Christians relate to the world is the question. How should Christians relate to the world? It's a big question, and a lot of ink has been spilt on that question over the years. And at the risk of oversimplifying, I think there are three different answers that Christians have come up with uh, throughout the years. How should Christians relate to the world? Well, some would say we must withdraw from the world. We must separate ourselves from the world. You see, as you grow in your knowledge of the goodness of God, you come to realize, don't you, how bad human culture can be, how ugly the world is in comparison to the glory of God, and also how dangerous and contaminating The ungodly human world is to Christian faith and practice and so doesn't it make sense to circle the wagons and protect our integrity and identity to defend ourselves from the corrupting influence of secularism this is the argument of this thought-provoking thought-provoking book the Benedict option which I know quite a few of us have read in which Rob Dreher calls Christians to Embrace exile from the mainstream culture and construct a resilient counterculture. In other words, circle the wagons, withdraw from the world. And there is some biblical justification for this point of view. Revelation 18, for example, calls the people of God to come out of the great godless city of Babylon, to withdraw from the world, to leave Babylon to... It's judgment. And doesn't the New Testament regularly call Christians to separate themselves from the world? Have nothing to do, says Paul in Ephesians 5, with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Have nothing to do, he says in 1 Timothy 4, with godless myths and old wives' tales. Have nothing to do, he says in 2 Timothy 3 verse 5, with people who love themselves instead of God, have nothing to do with them. And so some measure of separation and withdrawal from the world makes sense, doesn't it? Especially at times like ours, when the the mainstream culture turns actively hostile to Christians. How should Christians relate to the world? Withdraw, say some. Others, though, have argued for the exact opposite strategy. How can the church fulfill its mission to the world to be salt and light, they say, if we are not part of the world? How can we influence the culture for good if we turn our back on that culture? How can we win people back to the church if what the church stands for is so alien to the world? No, they say we've got to accommodate our beliefs and practices and values to those of the world because this will make the Christian gospel more attractive. Now, if you follow these things, you'll know that this is a very live issue now for the Church of England because this is the argument being put forward by the majority of bishops in the Church of England right now as they consider their response to the culture's view on same-sex marriage. So on the church's current stance on this, Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, says this. He says, it would be foolish for us to ignore the missiological damage that is done when that which is held to be morally normative and desirable by much of society is deemed morally unacceptable by the church. Which in plain English means, if the church continues to oppose society's sexual ethics, it will lose its influence. We've got to move with the times and remove the moral barriers that make the church look so outdated. So there are two extremes. Separation, the Rob Dreher view, accommodation on the other, the Bishop of York's view. But others see a third option. And perhaps this is the most attractive one for Christians who feel marginalized but can look back on various times in church history when that was not the case. Neither separation from the world nor accommodation to the world, but conquest of the world is the answer. No, they say we've got to redeem the culture, we've got to win the world, we've got to infiltrate the power structures, dominate the public square, we must re-Christianize the world. How should Christians relate to the world? Separate ourselves? Accommodate ourselves? Or conquer the world? Well, our passage this morning gives us another way entirely. As Emma said, we're just looking this morning at these two verses in 11 to 12, and I'll explain uh, the reason for that. But just have a look at those two verses again. Where Peter says, dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I suspect these verses are very familiar to many of us this morning. But this morning we're going to take a closer look at them in the context of Peter's letter because here in these two powerful sentences, not only do we find God's strategy for how Christians are to relate to the world and why, but we're also going to find ourselves approaching the very heart of the letter, really getting to grips with what Peter is on about. But before we get there, a little bit of context will be helpful. You'll notice that our little passage begins with the phrase, dear friends, in verse 11. And that little phrase, which we might easily miss or not notice, is actually telling us that Peter is beginning a new section. He's beginning a new line of thought in verse 11, not verse 13, as the formatting our Bibles would suggest and this is going to be important as we'll see. In fact this is a pivotal moment in the letter because notice he follows dear friends with I urge and that is telling us something important. New Testament letters often have this basic pattern that we go from the principles to the practice Uh, from the indicative to the imperative, from the is to the ought. This is where the rubber hits the road. So in the first bit of the letter, Peter has said a heap of stuff, and now he's saying, right, get on with it, live it out. I urge you, it's a pivotal moment in the letter. Well, what has he said so far then that he's going to now apply? Well, just turn back with me to verse one, and notice that he begins his letter by calling his readers elect strangers or exiles. I wonder if you just think about that for a moment. Elect strangers, chosen exiles. It's actually a phrase that perfectly captures the tension of the Christian life in this world, isn't it? If you think about it. See, on the one hand, Christians are elect, that is, chosen by God. And from verse 1, 1, all the way down to 2, verse 10, he's been unpacking what that means. And I think you'd need a heart of stone not to think it was pretty awesome stuff. If you're a Christian this morning, as Sam has already reminded us, if you're someone who's placed their trust in Jesus then you have been chosen by God. You've been rescued from the dead hopes of this world and reborn into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You've got a glorious identity. You've got a glorious future. You've got a generous father in heaven. You've got the revelation of the Bible into which angels long to look. You've got a savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose for you, you have been chosen by God. And no wonder, as we saw last week, Peter brings this all to a resounding climax of blessing and privilege in 2, 9 and 10. Just look at it again. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That is what it means to be elect, to be a Christian, to be privileged and loved beyond belief, chosen. But it's that very status as God's chosen people that then makes us aliens in this world, doesn't it? Because you have been chosen and born into a living hope, we can see the dead hope of this world. You can see the world for what it is, can't you? Because we belong to God, we cannot at the same time belong to the world. Because we're on our way to heaven, we are exiles now. Because we're inside God's family, we are outsiders to those who are hostile to God. Do you see how it works? Your identity as Christians now changes your relationship with the world. Emma and I are watching uh, uh, at Home with the Furies on Netflix. You know, you get to the point where there's only so many cookery programs you can cope with, and it's brilliant for making Morecambe look fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Pity about the swearing and all the rest, but makes Morecambe look good. But here's the thing. It's a fly-on-the-wall documentary about a celebrity family. Tyson Fury, world champion boxer. And sometimes they they kind of put the camera in front of the children and ask the children for their their take on things. And it's very interesting to see the children grappling with this identity that has hit them. They belong to this world-famous father. They have everything they could possibly want materially. And that has changed things for them. And you can see the older daughter particularly just, just grappling with what that means in terms of her relationship with the world. She said, I never need to get a job. I never need to learn how to cook. I don't need to do anything. Her mother's hammering at her and saying, you've got to actually learn to do these things. She's, she's worked out that she's supremely privileged. But it's going to change the relationship that she has with the world. She's not going to live a normal life. Now, this is a very imperfect analogy. Talking about the, the children of a world champion boxer but we are children of the creator of the world and the point is if god is your father if you're chosen with that beautiful future loved by god utterly secure revelation that angels long to look into a savior who died for you and rose again then you're going to feel strange in this world, aren't you? Your existence in this world is not going to carry on as it did before. Your relationship with God has put you at odds with the world. And if you're not yet a convinced believer in Jesus, then as you consider these things, you've got this choice before you. Am I going to have God as my father? And therefore, everything about life is going to be different. And there is going to be a cost. Things will not be the same again. You won't be able to live for this world any longer. But you'll be supremely privileged. Chosen exiles. Well, that's a summary of what Peter has said so far. And now, he's going to apply it. If we are elect exiles... What does it look like in practice? What will our relationship with the world be like? And in fact, the theme is going to occupy him all the way from 2 verse 11 all the way down to 4 verse 12, where if you just have a look, you'll notice he has another dear friend's break. And so the reason we're looking at these two verses on their own this morning is because they act as a kind of heading for everything he's going to say in this middle section of the book. And the essence of it is actually wonderfully simple to grasp. Lots and lots of ink spilt over this over the years, but you'll see the essence of it here is what I've put on the sheet. Live beautiful lives in an ugly world and leave the results to God. Live beautiful lives in an ugly world. And leave the results to God. Just so we can pace ourselves, the first point is long, second point, very short. So, live beautiful lives in an ugly world. Firstly, it sounds good, but what does it mean? Well, in the context of the letter, I think it means five things. If you're taking notes, you need space for five bullet points under this first heading. Firstly, living a beautiful life in an ugly world is a mission strategy not a survival strategy. It is a mission strategy, not a survival strategy. The reason I say this is because if we ever want to see what's on Peter's mind, we need to delve a little bit into the Old Testament language and ideas that he uses. In this case, the language of exiles and aliens and strangers is not something Peter has made up, but it actually takes us deep into the Old Testament story and the story of the people of Israel. And if you know the story, you'll know that God's plan for Israel was that they should be aliens and strangers in order to impact the wider world. See, so we saw this last week, didn't we, that the language of chosen people and royal nation in verse 9 comes from Exodus 19, just before God gave the law... To Israel through Moses and so Israel is gathered by God at Mount Sinai one people in one place like a sort of a church God gives them the law and says this is how I want you to live in the sight of all the world and what are the world meant to do the world are meant to look on and envy and say what other nation has laws like that what a great God Israel must have And that's why he says in verse 9, they are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, just like Israel. Now the church is to live in this way, which causes praise and glory to God. And Peter now applies that language to the church. We are verse 12. Like Israel lived among the nations, we are living among the pagans. And the word is simply nations there. It's the ethnic groups, literally, in the Greek. The way Israel were, our distinct life, is to impact the world. In other words, this good life is not a strategy for survival as we make our way to the final destination. This is part of God's mission strategy to the world. Which is why withdrawal and separation, the circle, the wagon's option, although there is lots we can learn from that book, the Benedict Option and its philosophy of kind of keeping ourselves pure as a counterculture, ultimately, it can't be the right answer because Peter urges his readers to get stuck in, to be part of the bigger picture, to relate to what God is doing in the world, to be this nation living. In the midst of the world. That's the first thing. Live a beautiful life in an ugly world. It's a mission strategy, not a survival strategy. Secondly, therefore, living a beautiful life means being different to the world. It means being different. Now, notice there are two parts to this there's a negative part in verse 11 and a positive counterpart in verse 12. Firstly, negatively, Christians are to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, verse 11. See, when you become a Christian, everything changes. The change is so massive that Peter describes it as a new birth in 1 verse 3. By God's spirit, you become obedient children, 114, no longer conformed to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As your identity changes, so does your character, your lifestyle, but that doesn't change overnight, and it doesn't change without a fight. So as you look back on your pre-Christian existence, you start, as Sam mentioned before, to get drawn back to the darkness. You find a fight going on in your souls, warring against your souls, he says. And you find the culture, the world, society, your friends are cheering you on so that you will lose the fight and capitulate. Just flip over to 4 verse 4 where Peter puts it like this. He says, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you many christian freshers have come to university and by the end of the second week they have found that prove very true because part of it is to say no to say no to resist and to say no to your sinful desires but the positive counterpart comes in verse 12 We are not just to say no. Look at verse 12. We are also to live good lives. That is, we are not just to turn from evil. We are to positively do good. We are not only to resist what God hates, we are to promote what he loves. We are not only to reject what is bad, we are to proactively pursue what is good. And I think this is very significant for how we relate to the world. See, it is easy, isn't it, for Christians to criticize the world? There's plenty to criticize. It is easy for us to fire from our ghetto what we hate about the culture. But it's harder to actually get out there and do good. So, for example, we are not just anti abortion, we are pro life. And in practice, what that means is not waving a placard outside an abortion clinic, but actually maybe adopting children. That's what it means. We are not just anti-same-sex marriage. We are pro-marriage, as God intended, which means actually working on our own marriages, making sure our own marriages are good and supporting godly and faithful marriages ourselves. Christians are not just anti-transgender, but we are pro-male and female as God intended us to be, and all the ramifications of that in life and practice. Christians are not anti-science. We are pro-God as creator. We're not anti-gambling, but we're for generosity and hard work. We're not just against swearing and drunkenness, but we are for kindness and self-control and so living a beautiful life means being different to the world and that means saying no to the world and saying yes to God at the same time but we need to dig a little bit deeper still and work out what exactly Peter means by good lives and good works in verse 12 and so thirdly the beautiful life is life lived God's way the beautiful life is life lived God's way so We've always got to read the Bible in context, and when we see Peter use this language of good life and good works, we mustn't assume that we know what he means. We must remember that we have cultural lenses on that will cause us to read this in the wrong way. I mean, when, when you hear the, the phrase, good work, what, what do you think it means? I mean, personally, I think the, the world has a pretty low bar when it comes to good works, I often think of this as I uh, pay at the checkout these days. And you're always asked, aren't you, to give that little charitable donation. It used to be 5p at Wilco's. It's 25p if you shop at Booze. It just tell, tells you the whole story, doesn't it? But Booze is a shop where they now sell carrier bags for 50p. I nearly fell off my seat when I had that the other day. 50p for a carrier bag. And then they wanted the 25p donation on top. This is why we never go to Booze. Apart from to pick up the Christmas catalog, that's worth having. If you're inclined to envy though, don't get the Christmas catalog. My point, having given you that mental break is, (laughs) our bar is very, very low, isn't it? Little 5P donation. Why do you think the shops do that? I'm sure there's a good commercial reason, but it just makes people feel good doesn't it the little 5p donation it feels like a good work but what peter has in mind is much much bigger and the connection is revealed as we read on this is easy to miss but this is why it's so important to see that the section begins at verse 11 not at verse 13 Our translation has stuck in a little gap between verse 12 and 13, but there's no reason it should have done that, because the section begins at verse 11 and carries on all the way down to chapter 4, verse 11. And so what is the topic he then introduces in verse 13? Have a look at it. Submit yourselves to every authority, verse 13. Verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. 3 verse 1, wives, be submissive to your husbands. What does Peter have in mind when he says, live the good life? He's talking about submission. First to authorities, then slaves to masters, then the submission of Christian wives to their husbands, particularly unbelieving husbands, 3 to 6. And then while the language changes slightly, he is still thinking along these lines as he talks about husbands being considerate to their wives in verse 7, and then church members being sympathetic and considerate to each other in 3 to 8 and following. We'll come back to look at all of that in detail over the next couple of weeks, but I mention it now because it just helps us to see what Peter means by the good life, and it's different to what we expect. It's different to what our world thinks is the good life. It is countercultural. It is counterintuitive. See, this word submission simply means to order yourself under another. And this is referring to the way God, in his wisdom, has ordered human relationships in particular ways for the flourishing of society. And so go back now and read again what he means by resisting the sinful desires which war against your soul those sinful desires are literally the fleshly desires the human desires the way of living which is human and natural to us and when we see the phrase sinful desires we probably immediately think of uh, extramarital sex and drunkenness and the like but he's just talking about being human He's just talking about what comes naturally to us, which is the opposite of submission. It is to assert your rights over others rather than to give up your rights for the sake of others. The desire to use your freedom to get your way rather than serve God in the sphere of life in which he's placed you. You see, what is normal, what is fleshly, what is human is for me to say, I'm going to live... For my good at your expense. I'm gonna do what is good for me at your expense. This is fleshly desire. This is human. This takes us right back to the snake in Genesis 3. And the Christian gospel turns that round and says, No, I'm now gonna live for your good at my expense. You see the transformation? Normal human life. I'm gonna live for my good at your expense. Yes, I can give a 5P donation at the checkout, but my basic position in life is I'm going to live my good at your expense. The gospel turns that round and says, I'm going to live for your good at my expense. And who, on the face of the earth and in human history, has demonstrated that more fully, as we will see next week, than the Lord Jesus Christ, when he gave himself on the cross, when he submitted to authority and said, I'm going to live for your good at my expense, which is why Peter comes to the cross at the end of this whole section on submission. And so whatever else abstaining from sin desires might mean, it certainly includes the temptation to resist God's good order of headship and submission in whatever sphere that has placed us in. And so, doing good and ugly worldly means living a life that is beautiful because it fits in with God's order. And that means it will also be countercultural. Which brings us to our fourth point. The beautiful life should lead some people to ask why. The beautiful life should lead some people to ask why. So, you remember, this is part of God's mission strategy. And if it is, we need to ask, where do these good works fit in? Is the idea, for example, that we do good works in order to win people over, then we hit them with the gospel? Is that the kind of idea? You sometimes get the impression it is, looking at some of the kind of social action projects that some churches get involved in. Or are the good works a substitute for sharing the gospel? You know the famous line that was... Uh, accredited to Francis of Assisi, poor old Sir Francis, Francis of Assisi. It's the only thing we remember him for, he probably didn't even say it. Preach the gospel at all times, using words if necessary. Is that where the good works fit in? In other words, is Peter saying actually you just 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 live a good life and people will become Christians? Is he contradicting Paul in Romans 10, where Paul says no, faith comes by hearing the word? Well, there's lots we could say about this, but the answer actually comes later on. If you just glance over to 315, you'll see the answer there. That Peter actually expects our lives to be so different, to be so salty, to be so gritty, to be so countercultural, that it will actually prompt people to ask why. It's all part of his strategy. 3.15 is not just a throwaway line. This is where he's he's taking this. People should be asking us, why do you live like this? In particular, what is it about the future that you believe in that makes you live like this? And those questions will then be given the verbal answer of the gospel, the explanation for the hope that we have one of my favorite novelists is uh, Australian author Tim Winton. I don't know if uh, you, you've read much of Tim Vint- Winton if you in novels, but there he is, looking very cool, an Australian. He's a big surf dude, <laughs> writes for adults and children. He's written some brilliant books. And uh, I'm not sure where Tim Winton himself stands spiritually, uh, but it's well known that he grew up in a family of committed evangelical Christians in Western Australia. And... If you've read Tim Winton, and I've read all of his novels, I think you notice that that does impact his writing, and he's very unashamed of it. He speaks of his Christian upbringing with real affection, even though I don't think he's a Christian himself. But Tim Winton didn't always live in a Christian family. He can remember a time when his family were not Christians, and then he can remember a time when his parents became Christians. And in this book his memoirs the boy behind a curtain uh, boy behind the curtain he explains how it happened tim winton's father was a policeman and uh, one day he was involved in an atrocious motorcycle accident involving a drunk driver that put him in a coma for weeks and when he came home from hospital He needed round-the-clock care for several months, and he was a big man, and Tim Winton's mother wasn't able to care for him, wasn't able to even kind of lift him out of bed and put him in the bath and so on. And Tim Winton recalls in his memoir, when he was a boy, he remembers this knock at the door one day, and there was a complete stranger standing there who introduced himself as Len. And he just said, I'm Len, I'm from the local Baptist church. I heard about the terrible accident. I just want to see if there's anything I can do to help. Well, in his account, Tim Winton describes the weirdness of this as this man came into their home and took care of his father. Once a week, would come and lift him from his bed and undress him and put him in the bath and do other jobs that his mother couldn't do. He says, I observed everything carefully, suspiciously, here was this bloke entering my parents' bedroom, introducing himself to my father, who consented to be undressed, lifted from his sickbed and carried like a child to the bathroom. But his actions taught me something new about strangers, that while they could wreck your life and do harm, they are also capable of mysterious kindness. And after the old man's recovery, my parents became devout, and lifelong Christians. You see, it wasn't that Tim Winton's parents received the compassion of the stranger and that made them Christians, but the unexpected kindness, what he calls the mysterious kindness, caused them to ask why. And that took them to the church that he attended. And that was the doorway to the whole family to the Christian faith. I think this tells us a great deal, doesn't it, about what we should be doing. People sometimes come to our church and they'll often ask the question about social action. You know the question? What kind of social action do you do as a church? And what they mean by that is what kind of organized projects and programs do we do to help people? Like soup kitchens, food banks giving out flip-flops and water to drunk people outside nightclubs. And my answer to the question is always the same. To say, we don't do any of those things. We don't do food banks. We don't do soup kitchens. We don't hand out flip-flops. But look around what actual people are doing. Not projects. But actual people and the love that they are showing to each other in the nitty-gritty of life, that is social action. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing those projects. I'm not questioning the motives behind them. If you want to do a soup kitchen, go ahead. It's probably a good thing to do. I'm just saying, actually, what is harder... And I think better is actually loving people in a community, loving real people and not being noticed. Not sort of virtue signaling and splashing it all over social media, but just giving your time. Knocking on the door of the housebound person who needs help with the garden. Giving your time to the lonely housebound old person across the road and doing it again and again and again. Opening your home. That quiet, untrumpeted work of Christian generosity, that is what I mean by social action. Otherwise known in the Bible as loving your neighbor. And it is tremendously challenging isn't it because we have to ask ourselves could it be that one of the reasons we don't see more people converted is because actually our lives are not radically different to the world if we find ourselves having few opportunities to share the gospel might it be because our lives are no more attractive no more beautiful than anyone else's? That we're just as cynical, just as stressed out, just as materialistic, just as comfort loving as the person we're trying to share the good news with? Could that be the case? That we've just blended in, lost our saltiness, so there's nothing that particularly stands out and would cause someone to say, why? But there's one more thing we need to see. The beautiful life is a life lived together. See, one of our blind spots, if you've grown up in the Western world, is we tend to always read things from an individualistic point of view, don't we? It's not helped by the English language, which, unlike most languages, cannot differentiate between you, singular, and you, plural. But when Peter uses the word you... In this passage, and almost all the way through the letter, he is speaking in the plural. Old English used to say, ye, Americans have your, we don't have anything. But Peter is saying, you as a group, you corporate, you as a church. Meanwhile, the word translated lives in the plural is actually the singular. So you all, plural, are to present to the world this singular lifestyle. And I think that changes things again, doesn't it? Because like Israel among the nations, God has attached his reputation to the world to the local church. A microcosm a shot window of life lived under the lordship of Christ. I think this is challenging and liberating at the same time. See, when you think of Moreland's church, what do you think of? Hopefully not this set of buildings, but probably this group of people meeting here in the center of Lancaster and various activities throughout the week. Have a look at what I think that looks like. But when your next-door neighbor or your colleague or flatmate or perhaps your unbelieving spouse, when that person thinks of Moreland's church or the person you play football with on a Friday night or the people you chat to at the school date, when they think of Moreland's church, do you know who they think of? They think of you. Because you represent the church to them. This is actually Moreland's church, isn't it? And this is why, as we'll see over the next few weeks, it does matter how each of us conducts ourselves because the reputation of the church is tied to the conduct of each individual in their different settings, which is why Peter then starts to talk about the way we as individuals relate to those in authority the way we as slaves relate to masters the way we as wives and husbands relate to each other even in the intimacy of of the home and the way we speak the truth to each other 3 verse 10 and following and so even the little things we do actually have an impact on God's reputation but it's also very liberating Because it means we do this together. And it means we actually take part together in God's mission through normal life. Not by being expert evangelists. And this is where the Benedict Option does get it absolutely right. If you're interested. Because he says actually one of the ways we withstand the culture is we just do the Christian life. We just... Live as godly families. We raise our children the way God wants us to raise our children. We don't plagiarize in our studies. We teach our children to obey their parents. We might not seem like cutting-edge missionary activities, but this is the mission that God has given us. This is the way God has given us to display his order. And when people come into the church gathering, they see a bunch of people, who are living to praise God in the way that they live we do this together so five things I think Peter's teaching us live beautiful lives in an ugly world it is part of the mission strategy it means being different it means living life God's way it should lead some to ask why and it's something we do together God has entrusted his reputation to the church and so that ought to cause us to ask well how are we doing and I think there's plenty for us to go and think about throughout the week on that question but we live beautiful lives in an ugly world and we leave the results to God because the question all this I think raises does any of this actually work does it lead people to put their faith in Christ now well, it all depends on how we understand the last phrase of verse 12. Have a look at it. Live good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What does it mean for unbelievers who see our good deeds to glorify God on the day he visits us? Is it a positive thing? Or a negative thing is it a promise or a vague possibility well this is a much contested verse the easy bit is actually the day God visits us although that might sound unusual to our ears it's actually a very clear biblical way of talking about the end time day of judgment Isaiah 10 verse 3 what will you do God says in Isaiah, you who are stolen from the poor and oppressed the vulnerable on the day of my visitation. Jesus, Luke 19, talks of the great and terrible day of judgment as the day of visitation. And this fits with Peter's emphasis on the return of Jesus and the hope that we are looking forward to. So that bit, I think, is clear. The day God visits is the day of judgment, the day of accountability, where everything is brought into the light. Christians are to live beautiful lives now with the expectation of something happening on that day. More difficult, though is, what that something is. What does it mean for pagans who see the good deeds to glorify God? Well, there are two options. On the one hand, it means it could mean judgment. To glorify God does not always mean to praise him voluntarily. There will be, says Paul in Philippians 2, a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God's coming judgment will force everybody to glorify him. Whether they want to or not, it will compel the glory of everyone who bows the knee to him. And so if that's the case, the idea is that those who've received the witness of the church will have no excuse. They will acknowledge the good works of Christians and give God the glory then that they should have given him now. On the other hand, it could just as likely point to their salvation. There are many examples in the New Testament where to glorify God means to acknowledge his salvation before the day of judgment and be saved. And even more compelling, I think, on this side of the argument is that little word see in verse twelve. This is not the usual Greek word for see, in fact, it only occurs twice in the whole New Testament. The other time is 3 verse 2, where the unbelieving husband is won over when they see the beauty of their wives' lives. So I think it's a pretty fine balance. Will they glorify God in judgment on the last day, or will they glorify God now and be saved? Well, why don't you uh, have a think? Why don't I give you 30 seconds to talk to your neighbor and decide uh, which one it is? Okay, anybody decide it was judgment? Hands up. No one's, anyone decide it was salvation? Hands up. Anyone go for Winnie the Pooh option? <laughs> both condensed milk and honey. It's got to be both, hasn't it? And the clue is right there in verse 12. They will accuse you of doing wrong at the same time as seeing your good deeds. In other words, some will see the good deeds Christians do and will conclude, according to their cultural lenses, that these deeds are actually evil. This was the case in the first century. When people saw Christians doing strange things, like being kind to their neighbor, taking in unwanted children, these weird things that they did that we now consider normal. And it's the case today. Do you remember the quote I read from the Pride book a couple of weeks ago? To believe in marriage is wicked. To flaunt sexual perversion is virtuous. To encourage sexual restraint is abusive. To urge sexual experimentation is decent and right. To kill unborn children is right. To suggest their lives should be protected is morally appalling. That is the world in which we live. And so by submitting to God's order, we will attract the hostility of those who are hostile to God. In verse 15, Peter says, By doing this, we will silence the talk of foolish men. But that won't always be our present experience. In fact, hardly ever. But there will be silence on the last day. They will give God glory in the end when they acknowledge his rightness. But brilliantly, some will see in a deeper sense. Some will see what Tim Winton's parents saw in that weird act of kindness that led them to Christ. They will see Christians doing the right thing, not in some act of virtue signaling to win an audience, but just because it is the right thing to do. They will see this beautiful corporate countercultural life. They will ask the reason for the hope that we have They will hear the gospel, and they will glorify now by bowing the knee to Jesus before he returns. Either way, we won't know until the last day. And so our job is to press on with the good life, simply because it is the good life. And whether people are saved by it or judged is God's business, and all the glory will go to him in the end. And next week we'll see, but nobody has ever modeled that so well, submitting to the hostility of the world, giving up his good for their good, than the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray that we will follow his example. Let's pray that now. Peter says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly father we thank you for the example of the lord jesus christ thank you that he gave us this supreme example of giving up his good for our good. And we pray that in the midst of a world full of ugliness and sin and disorder you would help us to live such beautiful countercultural lives together that that gospel of Jesus will be seen and heard and all glory will go to you.